Good morning. Is anyone in the room, would you describe yourself as an adrenaline junkie like me? Okay, so like three. <laughs> That's only way less than I was expecting, but that's okay. Uh, so I love a good roller coaster. Uh, I always have. As a teen, we used to get uh, uh, season passes at La Ronde and go on all the, all the roller coasters. It was always good fun. And part of the fun is the reality that if the seatbelt or whatever thing is holding you back doesn't work, um, well, you're going to go flying off. And that'll be a, uh, a quick end to the ride. But when you're there, you have to like trust the guarantee of the theme park that you are going to be held in the, in the cart of the, of the roller coaster. And so if you want to ride, you have to trust. And this morning, we're going to talk about how, as Christians, we have to trust God. So I'm just going to pray quickly, and then we'll get into it. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. Uh, thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would speak to all of us. Um, yeah, Lord, I pray thanking you for, for your presence here this morning. Speak to us loud and clear through your word and mold us into your likeness, Jesus. I pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. So, if you've been here at all in the last few months, you've probably heard words like promise and covenant, and I am promising you right now that you will hear those words again this morning. Um, and when we've talked about them before, it was about uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and how God had a special promise that he made to them, the covenant. Uh, and it wasn't anything that they did to deserve that. It was all because of God's grace. So it, grace wasn't dependent on them earning any part of it in any way, shape, or form. But now we're going to talk about this covenant from a perspective about uh, like 1,700 to 2,000 years later. And it's in the book of Galatians. So if you have your Bible with you and you want to follow along, we'll be in Galatians chapter 3. I'm going to start by giving a little bit of context to this letter. So Galatia was a Roman province in the central part of modern-day Turkey. And uh, Paul went there on his first missionary journey. He went to different cities, spread the gospel, started a few churches. And so then, after his first missionary journey concludes, he writes this letter to them. So these churches at this point are very diverse. They're composed of mixed congregations of part Jewish, part Gentile, or non-Jewish. And this is really significant. The thing is, there was a bit of an elitist mindset for the Jews because they were God's chosen people. And so it made some of them a little bit uncomfortable, the thought of worshiping alongside non-Jews. Because God had made promises to them. He had promised the Messiah, the anointed one to them. So it's like, why should you worship our Messiah, our anointed one, our Savior? And that builds up to a crisis because there are some people called Judaizers who come in and they kind of capitalize on that and make it um, very uh, tantalizing for people to accept a false message of you're not like us, but you can become like us. And it wasn't that uncommon around that time. Uh, there were a number of people who would convert to Judaism, and then they would be welcomed in. But they were kind of separated into two different categories. So first you had the proselytes, and they were full converts. They went through with everything, all the Mosaic law and the oral law. Um, so they went through with uh, sacrificial offerings, male circumcision, baptism, but then there was also another group of like softer converts, you could say. Uh, they were called God-fearers. And they didn't go through with all the laws. Um, and, but they did do things like avoiding idolatry, becoming, not becoming ceremonially unclean, and avoiding immorality. So these Judaizers come into these churches in Galatia to spread 
the message that they need, these Christians, these Gentile Christians specifically, need to become Jewish proselytes in order to be real Christians. So this is the problem because a lot of people are starting to accept this. Now they're switching over. Um, male, male circumcision is happening and eating kosher foods only is happening. Um, and then... Uh, Paul hears about this, and he writes them this letter. He's sad, he's frustrated that they would believe something that would undermine the gospel. And so he writes, and this is the start of our passage, at verse 1 in chapter 3. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? I wasn't there when, he, when those letters were read in the churches, but I assume there weren't too many amens being shouted after that. Um, he says, before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? Uh, the word experience can also be translated as suffered. So again, I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So here we see Paul say, asking six rhetorical questions. It says, who has bewitched you? Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced or suffered so much in vain? So again, I ask, does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you heard or hearing with faith? So first, he says, who has bewitched you? And he, he uses that, uh, that term. It can also be uh, seen as fascinated or enticed you. And he's drawing a parallel with the common uh, cultural practice of witchcraft. And so he's basically uh, comparing the, uh, these false beliefs to uh, basically these Christians dabbling in, in witchcraft. Um, he's like saying that they came under the spell of the false teachers. And he's shocked by that. So that's why he starts to ask these questions to like, just get them to realize how crazy it is for him to see that they're accepting these things. Um, so they're being fooled into believing something that would nullify the gospel, the good news that Jesus was in fact crucified for them. And so... When he's asking all these questions, um, something just to clarify, he talks about the law. And what's the law that he's talking about here? He's talking about the Mosaic law or the Torah uh, that's found in the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Um, and they were a set of texts meant to guide the people of Israel. But they can be divided into three subcategories. So you have the moral laws, the ceremonial laws, and the judicial laws. The moral laws, they help to reveal God's character, um, God's desire for respect, justice, um, his purity, his holiness. And this includes the Ten Commandments. It's good for all people. But then there's the ceremonial law, which was for the people of Israel that the Judaizers were trying to enforce on the Gentile Christians. So this has to do with memorial feasts and festivals uh, to remind the people of Israel what God had done for them. So it's sacrifices, circumcision, um, but ultimately all these signs pointed to Jesus, but now Jesus had come. Now the judicial law was about restitution for wrongdoings, and um, this was also only for the Israelites. So then when he talks about, did you receive the Holy Spirit, he's highlighting to them like, hey, you've been brought in to the family of God already. Like, why do you think that now you can keep being brought in by your own efforts? 
It doesn't make sense. It's like if you got to meet the owner of a membership-only fancy restaurant and he gave you membership for free, would you then go get facial reconstruction surgery and change your name and ID and everything and then try to get in? You, it just wouldn't make, make sense. And so Paul goes on, calls them foolish again. Um, he's very complimentary at this point. Um, and, but he, he asks a, a key question when he says, um, after beginning by means of the spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? And I want to ask you, do you ever find yourself doing this in your life? Uh, you believe God, you came into this amazing family of faith, but now you try to do good things to impress God, or maybe as a backup plan in case uh, faith isn't enough, then maybe God will let you into paradise because of the good things that you've done. Or you're hoping that God will approve of you more or love you more because of good things that you do. Are you trying to essentially nullify um, grace? So then... When he says in verse four, have you experienced or suffered? Um, he's talking about the suffering that they've gone through for the cause of Christ, because now what they're doing by accepting these false teachings and trying to act in their own strength to the, re receive the approval of God, it's rejecting the cause of Christ that they suffered for. Um, and so then he, he talks about the everyday work of the Holy Spirit um, because that, that's the life of the believer, is um, a life that we hear and we believe daily. That's our reality. So Paul goes on to show at, the, at verse 6, where he says, So also Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, that the gospel was seen and foreshadowed in the Old Testament. Abraham believed credited to him as righteousness. That's from Genesis 15, 6. Um, and this is all before the law was even introduced, that we see a pointing to the gospel. Um, so there, there's a number of words that are going to come up, and I'm gonna, just going to speed run through them in case you're not familiar with them, like faith. Uh, faith is, uh, according to Hebrews, faith is the confidence in what we hope for and assurance for the things we do not see. It's believing, trusting God, uh, all that he says, all that he does, uh, including trusting, having faith that Jesus is the redeemer who cleanses us from our wrongdoings. He makes us pure. Uh, righteousness, that means basically just to be made right in the sight of God. The problem for us is that that standard to be righteous is absolute pure perfection of God. So it's a completely unattainable standard on our own. Uh, redeem, that means just to be freed and forgiven from slavery to sin. It means you're, you're holy and adopted and reconciled to God. You're justified for, before God. And this had uh, connotations with, with slavery back then when someone would purchase a slave's uh, freedom, he would redeem them. And then justification or justify means to be declared or pronounced righteous. So continuing on verse seven, Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed among, along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse as it is written. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith, we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Abraham had faith. He's known as the father of faith. Uh, he had faith that God would fulfill the promises he made. 
And yes, there was the promise for a biological family, the, the Israelites, but there was, um, there was also just the promise of a spiritual family, which was the, the greater point of that promise, of that covenant. And to be a children of Abraham was a huge honor uh, for the Jews, and, and I've mentioned that before. It really was a massive, massive honor because they were part of God's family, God's, God's chosen people. But a lot of them missed the point when it says all nations, that it would be for all nations. Um, that's back in Genesis 12, verse 3. And so um, he makes, Paul makes a huge statement when he says it simply that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Those who have faith in God, belong to God, belong to the spiritual family of the promise. Um, and, so, and, and so you see that God promises the gospel ultimately. It's a promise that would be for all nations. God's beautiful, diverse family with no uh, limitations on nationality. And because of that promise, we get to all be here together worshiping God this morning. We get to live for him and serve him, all of us. We get to have a relationship with him because of that promise for all nations. And so then he contrasts between relying on faith and relying on works of the law. So he says, if you rely on faith, well, you trust the promises of God, you trust the covenant, uh, and you believe that it's real. And through that comes blessing. Through that comes justification. But if you rely on the works of the law, you rely on your own abilities, your own deeds to become right with God, then you're not trusting the promise. You're working for something that you cannot, cannot achieve on your own. It's not possible. And so comes the curse. Um, and that's why in, uh, Paul references Habakkuk when he says the righteous will live by faith. So that even in the Old Testament, we see how faith was the point. Um, and the, the life of God's people was a life of faith. Uh, and just to, to be clear, the law is not a curse. The law itself was good. But it's the reliance on perfect adherence to the law that we can't do, that's what brought in failure because failure was inevitable, which brings in the curse. But we're not left with this hopelessness because uh, Jesus became the curse for us. He was uh, the atonement for us, what we needed. He took our sins when he died on the cross. He redeemed us. He redeemed us. So we're not stuck in this curse. It's beautiful. And because of that comes the new covenant and we get to live in the spirit, live by the spirit. And if you're curious to dive more into that, Galatians 5 and 6 go into all that and it's really, really cool. But we don't have time for that today, so I'll keep moving on. Um, Verse 11 says, clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Um, so, sorry. Um, why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions. Until the seed to whom the promise had referred had come, the law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. 
But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. So there's a lot of things in here that sound confusing. Um, So I'm going to unpack them, uh, try to simplify them a bit. But when God made uh, the covenant with Abraham, uh, and then he brought in the law 430 years later, it wasn't to go against it, but we see a successive building upon. We see this throughout history. So, it, and it goes back to the Garden of Eden, right in Eden, where God made humans to rule over the whole earth and um, be with God in his glory We see God's good intentions for humanity, his good design, and his longing for relationship with the humanity that he created. And what you see, though, is that humans decide to reject him and do the one thing he asked people not to do. So then there's the fall. Uh, Then, because of the fall, Eventually, God does promise to Adam that there would be a future descendant who would be victorious over sin and death, obviously pointing to Jesus. And then um, you'd think that people would be like, okay, we have hope. Things are going good now. We can hold on to this. No, people reject God. And so then God sends the flood. But then God promises to Noah to mercifully preserve the human existence on earth despite their constant rejection of him. It's merciful, and it builds off of the promise to send a redeemer, right? So first there's the banishment, sorry, there's the perfect world, and then people sin. And so then God banishes people to keep people from living eternally in sin. And then uh, there's more and more sin, and then God promises, uh, God promises to eventually send a redeemer, and then God promises to Uh, sustain the human race, keep them alive. Um, And then people decide, at this point, let's all band together in rejection of God. So God scatters them and nations form. Then God calls Abraham out of a nation and he tells Abraham that God would make through Abraham a people, a nation devoted to God. So the nation of Israel forms. And this is the covenant we've been talking about. But the Israelites eventually become enslaved in Egypt. So then um, eventually you get Moses who comes and God calls Moses to be his mediator. Then that was the word mediator in that passage. And he comes in and delivers people uh, out of Egypt. He delivers his people out of Egypt. And, um, and then they're just this random group of uh, people just wandering wandering around in the desert. And so he gives them the law to help them and show them how to live. There's going to be a bit more on that later. But, and and this law, the, the things that it teaches are so drastically different from all the cultural views and standards all around them. But it reveals his heart, his character, and it's just another incremental step in getting people to be more and more aligned with his character. But then, surprise, surprise, people decide, no, let's reject God again. Uh, There's a little bit of a cycle here going on, and this cycle goes on with the nation of Israel over and over and over again um, of people rejecting God, God making a way for them to come back. Uh, and eventually there's, there's a king, King David, and God makes a covenant with King David that there would eventually be a successor through, or sorry, there would be down the line through his successor Solomon, eventually a descendant that would establish an eternal, an eternal kingdom. So there's just another building upon. And so the culmination of all these things and so many more is Jesus. And Jesus is the one who fulfilled all the law, all the prophets, and he brought us the new covenant. And by the way, Jesus kept elevating the bar when he said, 
love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. But he fulfilled the law. He fulfilled it. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and brings forgiveness. And then because of that, in this new covenant, believers, his family receives the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is a down payment of what's to come. It's, um, and it's what transforms us. He, the, the Holy Spirit transforms us into Christ-likeness. It's a further um, alignment of God's people to God. And it points to the perfect eternity that we'll have with God in his full glory. And I don't know how God is so patient because I get really impatient sitting 15 minutes in traffic. But God over and over and over again does things, makes promises, uh, introduces guidance and all kinds of things to bring people to knowing him more and more even though people keep rejecting him over and over and over again. Um, so, why the law? It says, because of transgressions. That sounds super nebulous. I have no idea what that means the first time I read it. But here's seven reasons why God did give the law. So it was to guide his people, the Israelites, into living lives that were dedicated to him, lives that were distinct from the other nations because they were a nation for God. So this included feasts and festivals and all kinds of things. Second, it was to reveal what they should and should not do and how they should live. Third, it was to guard them from wrongdoing or transgressing. Fourth, it presented a sacrificial system for temporarily dealing with those inevitable transgressions. Fifth, it was to reveal and expose their sin, the wrongdoings they've committed, Sixth, reveals the need for a savior because ultimately everyone falls short. Seven, reveal God's character, his perfection, his holiness. And Paul uses the word until to highlight the fact that there was a temporary aspect of the law. And he uses that intentionally with what's all that's going on in these Galatian churches. So, we see, and, and he says this, that the, uh, what's observed in the Old Testament is not laws that contradicted the promises, but laws that built off of those promises. So th was the law good? Yes, absolutely. But the law couldn't be enough for people to attain righteousness. Because once again, people will inevitably fall short of the standard that the law puts out there. So then verses uh, 20, sorry, that's too small, 23 to 25. Before the coming of the law, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So God, sorry, so Paul uses the word here is guardian. The Greek word is, and I hope I say this right, I practiced it a lot, but I'll probably still say it wrong, paidagogos, um, which is a combination of two Greek words, uh, meaning child and leader, and it can be translated also as a guide or a tutor, instructor. Uh, so this word was used, it, it was a cultural title used in some uh, well-off Greek and Roman homes. It was a honorable servant who was in charge of the, the young boys in the household. And so he would make sure to supervise these boys and escort them to and from school, making sure that there weren't any unplanned detours, making sure there weren't any unfortunate events that would come up. And he would instruct them in things like morality. And, uh, and this was throughout the, the growing up process of these young boys. It was a highly, highly important and honorable job for a servant in a household. And this is the word that Paul is using 
to describe the importance of the law for God's people, for the people of Israel. Uh, and so ultimately, this guide was to guide us to Christ. Depending on what version you have before you, it might say that. And now, with faith, with the new covenant, we're no longer under that guardian. We're no longer under that guide um, because now there's the new covenant because now we get the Holy Spirit. So now we get to the climatic, climax of our passage. It's a few beautiful, beautiful verses. It says, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God. Through faith for all of you, who were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. It is the great equalizer of the gospel. When we come into God's family through faith, we're all children of God through faith all baptized into Christ, all clothed with Christ, all one, because we're all blessed as recipients of the promise, as recipients of grace. So we're, we're baptized into Christ, and this just uh, contrasts to the, uh, to the beliefs that Ju the Judaizers were spreading about needing to be baptized into Judaism, we're baptized into Christ. We're clothed with Christ. We express his promise. It's displayed on our lives. It covers us. And then he, he contrasts different groups of people that would have different social standings at the time. He says there's uh, neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ. This is a beautiful revolutionary statement that he makes. So if you belong in Christ, belong to Christ, you're in. You've got the in. You're part of that family, that free family of faith, that family that's been redeemed by grace. And it's because of the promise. It's not because of things we've done to earn it in the slightest. It's because of God's goodness. It's because of his care, his love, even though we were so stubbornly rejecting of him. So, if I were to ask you what a Christian is, unfortunately, a lot of people get into the mindset of a Christian is someone who lives by a certain code of conduct, bunch of do's and don'ts, does go to church, does read the Bible, uh, does pray, doesn't uh, kill. Um, but, and other things. Um, but a Christian is so much more than that. And those are not the things that make someone a Christian. Those are just things. Those are just acts. Um, a Christian is a person who trusts God, who put his or her faith in Jesus and in his death as the payment for your sins. And Jesus, who rose from the dead, conquering death itself, a Christian is this child of God, someone who trusts God's promise. And the things a Christian does are because of the Christian's identity in Christ. We don't gather for church because that's what makes us Christians. We gather for church because we are God's people, so we meet with God's people in unity to serve and glorify God. Um, we don't read the Bible because we think that that is what makes us a Christian. We read the Bible because it's God's word and we get to read God's word because we belong to him. We are his children adopted into his family. And so we get to get closer to him, learn about him, worship him more. The things that we do as Christians should flow out of our identity in Christ. And we shouldn't do those to win the approval of God. So I have a few questions for you. Like one day when your life is expired, what is your hope going to be in? 
What is your trust going to be in? In Jesus, in what he did? Or is there part of you still relying on the things that you've done to give you hope? Um, Are you gonna show up with a long list of things that God did to hopefully get approval or the long things that you did for God to get approval? Or are you gonna show up so excited even though it's the judgment seat, sounds intimidating, but you'll be so excited to be coming home to the God that you know, the God that knows you and loves you and has been there for you your entire life. Are you gonna arrive there and just be so excited about the warm greeting, knowing this God, trusting Jesus as your defender, your deliverer, your Lord, your redeemer, the Holy Son of God, Do you trust God to guide you to glory as he guides you to himself? Is your confidence in yourself or is your confidence in Christ? I'm really excited for that day because it's going to be really surreal and amazing to stand there with no confidence in myself because all the confidence I'll have will be in what Christ has done for me, purchasing eternal life for me, freedom for me, for all eternity. It'll just be such an amazing, joyous time, joyous moment, recognizing that I'll be standing so secure in my inability to have gotten there on my own but fully there on Christ's ability to bring me because of his grace. It's gonna be glorious. It's gonna be beautiful to stand there, a sinner forgiven. Forgiven? Forgiven. Um, But once dirty and tarnished by sin and now seen as good, pure, righteous before God Almighty. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for bringing us into your family. Thank you that you made a way, even though there was no way that we could make on our own to be part of your family, you made that way. Um, Thank you that we get to, yeah, share in these blessings, these blessings uh, from the promises that you've made. You're so good. Thank you, Lord. I pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Adrian. So we are doing our Q&A time right now. And so if you have a question you'd like to ask Adrian about anything that he has spoken about, you can uh, just raise your hand if you're in the room. We have a mic coming around and someone will bring you the mic. If you are too shy, you can also text the number on the screen. Or if you're watching on our live stream, you can also text So um, do we have any questions in the room? It takes a couple minutes for some of the text questions to come in. No, okay, well, good thing I just felt a text come in. Oh, it's not a question, it says, good job, Adrian. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I don't know who that was. Okay, we have a question over here, Gideon. Hey, uh, thanks for your <laughs> thanks for your message, Adrian. Very great. Uh, So my question would be more along the lines of uh, falling into the trap of legalism and how we set up this system of do's and don'ts because sometimes things are clearer to us than, than other times. So how do we reconcile the idea of wanting to live for God, wanting to follow his laws, but also enjoying the freedom that he brings as well? That's really good, and I definitely won't be able to answer that in fullness. But essentially, as God's people, as his children, 
we get to share in so many remarkable blessings. And we should want to do things for God, right? We should want to do good things, follow his law, follow the things that point to his character. But we should also recognize that it's the spirit who does the work in us, um, the spirit that causes us to grow. And it can be really easy, a really easy trap to fall into of legalism and a sense of like, oh yeah, like I don't do that anymore, so now I'm better. But it's, I think the, the key is just the constant reminder of Jesus' sacrifice, Jesus saving us from the enslavement to sin for his glory to be part of his people, something that we didn't deserve at all. It's all by grace. Um, yeah, I don't know if that answers it or not in a short way. <laughs> okay, if you have another question in the room, we do have, okay, we have a couple over here. I'm going to ask uh, all the way over to the other side. We're making our mic runner run today. Um, I have a couple questions from the text line. What exactly is Zion? Is it heaven? And how do we physically get there? That's a good question. Uh, Zion has multiple meanings. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but Zion can refer to the people of Israel. Um, it can refer to... Uh, can it refer to part of Jerusalem, I believe? Um, but ultimately, it does refer to uh, the eternity that we'll share in God's perfection. And I would say, I'll add to that, that it's the heaven on earth city, the mm -hmm. renewed Jerusalem, yeah. specifically. All right, um, one more, and then we're going to go over here. Um, how should we know someone that's, how should we know someone is for us and from God? What is a partner from God supposed to look like? Not really super related to your sermon, but you're like <laughs> married for a couple years now, so what's your wisdom, Adrian? <laughs> oh, boy. Um, pray. <laughs> pray about it a lot. Um, oh, man, what do I go into? <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, definitely just make sure that uh, this other person's primary focus is Christ. Primary, uh, the, the way they live their lives is about glory to God. Like, that is why they live and they know their identity in Christ. Um, and ultimately, if you're both committed to God, then um, you can both be committed to each other. Um, recognizing the promises that he's made and um, continually working to become more and more like Christ and continually um, recognizing your shortcomings and allowing the spirit to mold you, inform you, and change you. Okay, we're going to go over to our question over here. Uh, yes, um, it's in regards to baptism. Are there more than one type or are there many, several types of baptism in Galatians 3 verse 27 speaks of, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. So is that an immersion baptism or a spiritual baptism? It's baptism by faith. I think it's both. Uh, I think it's both like baptism by water and spiritual. I think primarily it's referring to a spiritual baptism because uh, like we, we tend to associate baptism with, with Christianity now, which is great, but uh, baptism had been taking place since, I believe since like the Babylonian captivity. And it was a, it was a common practice for people coming into the Jewish faith. Uh, and so when it's talking about being baptized into Christ, it means being brought into the new covenant. It means being brought into the, the family of faith. Um, yes, there's like multiple ways uh, that the Bible refers to baptism, but uh, here it's talking about like coming into right relationship with God through the sacrifice of Jesus. All right. I think we had another. Yeah, we have Adel over here all the way. Oh, we have a question there. Okay. okay um, you spoke of baptism in Acts 2.38. We read... Um, 
repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you receive the, the gift of the Holy Spirit. But in um, Matthew 28, 6, 18, we read that Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This, I believe, is a controversy. Which one? Baptize in the name of Jesus or baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? So I think when it's talking about like baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, that's talking about like the physical act of baptism, um, being immersed, being brought into, again, it, it's a, a symbol of what's happening on a spiritual level of being brought into God's family by being cleansed from our sins. Um, so... When, that's why when, when baptisms are happening, people will say, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Because we are baptized, um, when we're baptized, we are made pure in the sight of the true, real, uh, triune, holy, pure God. So that's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as one God. All right, we have Adel all the way over on the other side. And I'm going to ask this question while we get to her. Why did God show himself to us a lot more before Jesus came to us? And why is it that now his way of communicating with us seems a lot more discreet? Could you repeat it again? <laughs> yep. Why did God show himself to us a lot more before Jesus came to us? And why is it now that his way of communicating with us is a lot more discreet? I think God has always been um, constant, um, but God definitely has revealed himself in, in different ways uh, throughout history, and you think of like in the Old Testament with the, the you know, the, the, uh, the smoke and fire through the wilderness, but then you think of the tabernacle, you think of the temple where God's glory resided. Now it's different because now with the new covenant, um, the, the Holy Spirit resides in us. And so there, there's different things that we can read about where God displays himself in, in the Old Testament and think, like, why aren't those things here anymore? Like, why don't we see those things? But God is still very much so present, and he's actually present in us to a whole other degree that was never um, previously a reality. When the Holy Spirit comes and indwells uh, the people of God. Yeah, and I would, I would add to that that the, uh, the Bible says, well, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So he is the revelation of God the Father. And so that's how God revealed himself once Jesus came. And then the Spirit, after Jesus ascended back into heaven, is what continues to reveal uh, things to us in our hearts. So I hope that, that helped to make it clear. Um, Adel is going to be our last question. So go ahead, Adel. Ooh, last. Make it good. Okay. <laughs> so then it's a two-part question. So this is about identity. You talked about it at the end. And um, specifically about our list of accomplishments. Who are we? What are we based on? So my question is, having grown up in a culture that is all about accomplishment. It becomes so much a part of you that um, I, I can't even, sometimes I can't tell. So two-part question. Number one, what is a telltale sign that I am leaning on my accomplishments um, for my identity? And part two is what are some easy habits that I can incorporate? And when I say I, I mean we can incorporate to move away from that as a form of identity to who we are in Christ. I like the two-part question. It's like the genie, uh, you get three wishes, ask for an unlimited wishes is one of your wishes. Um, but 
I don't know if this is if this is gonna answer it well or not, but yes, like we do live in a competitive society where we do really prize accomplishments uh, sometimes over everything else, and we prize the things we did. Um, and we, we knock ourselves down for the things that we, we don't do or the things that we fail at. And um, we, we see ourselves as being only as great as our greatest achievements or only as great as our greatest achievements are perceived by others. And, or we see ourselves as low as our greatest failure or as low as our greatest failure is perceived by others. And it can be really easy to, to fall into thinking that way and to believing that about our spiritual walk and to think that we're only as good of a Christian according to the great things that we've done for God. But that's not the, the mark of, of the family of God. We are called to, into partnership with God. We are called to serve God. Um, but those things are not the things that give us um, they give us relationship. Those are not things that give us and grant us the Holy Spirit. And so to, to keep away from putting our, our sense of satisfaction of our relationship with God in the things that we're doing for God, I think we just need to continue just going back to God for God. Go to him for his glory. Um, remind yourself of him, of his might, his majesty, his power, um, and recognize that this is not on us. This is not about us. It's not for us. It's all by him, for him, to him, and because of him, and for his glory. So I, I hope that answers it. I'll just, I'll just tell you my what, what happens to me. Um, and this might not be relatable because I'm a pastor, so I have to do a lot of upfront churchy things. Um, but... When I am about to be on stage for something, I often am like, well, I did so many devotions this week, so I'm going to do really good at being on stage. You know, it's going to be good. And then if I fail at doing devotions or, you know, fill in the blank for you, then, I, then I'm like, oh, it's going to be the worst, you know, but it's actually God needs to work through me. And so when I'm starting to rely on what, what I have done, you know, I haven't haven't cut anyone off in traffic or flipped anyone off in traffic or kicked any dogs or whatever. I don't go around kicking dogs. I'm just, <laughs> I'm allergic to them. So I gently nudge them away. But, <laughs> um, but you know, whatever the, the thing is that like, I did this good thing and I didn't do this bad thing equals God approves of me and he loves me. Or if I did the bad thing, then he has his love. He's withholding it just a little bit more. You know, he's just taking a step back. That's when, that's when I, I realized like I'm relying on my own stuff for, um, to measure up to God. And I need to just come back to him and be like, remind me. <laughs> that's the habit that I have. Just like, just remind me, Lord, that I'm, I'm doing this, you know, show me when I am and remind me of who you are in my life and that, that I, am, I am loved as much as you can love me because of Jesus. So I hope those are helpful questions or helpful answers. I'm going to pray for us and we're going to continue on with our service.